Because the arts enrich, transform, unite, and strengthen us through shared understanding and expression. Because the arts are magical and powerful, they increase compassion and understanding to make change, stimulate imagination, and nourish happiness. Because, because art has, has the power to change the world. Today on Because Radio, we'll speak with filmmaker and artist Noam Gonick about his public artwork commemorating the 1919 Winnipeg General Strike. We'll also learn about Urban Shaman's Sacred Sounds, an Indigenous Languages Revitalization Initiative. This week's Winnipeg Impact Maker is Brooke Van Reisel from My Body Fitness and Nutrition, and we'll speak with her about her support for body positivity. And we'll have a preview of the latest episode of Because and Effect, featuring award-winning sportscaster Scott Oak. All this and more on Because Radio. Hello and welcome to episode one of Because Radio. My name is Robert Zirk. And I'm Sunny Promolo. It's great to be joining you on a, uh, a refreshed version of the radio show. We decided to change things up a little bit. Uh, the Winnipeg Foundation is really focusing about causes that people care about. And so we thought it was time to uh, to refresh the radio show a little bit. And that's why we are coming to you today as Because Radio. Absolutely. And uh, the structure will be a little bit different, but uh, don't worry. Of course, we'll still cover a lot of the great news in the philanthropic sector of our city. Unfortunately, we lost Nolan as a host, but uh, he'll still be around for sure. Absolutely. He'll be uh, on the show later in the episode. Uh, we'll have some highlights from his brand new podcast uh, produced by the Winnipeg Foundation called Because and Effect. So uh, the first conversation was with Scott Oak. You won't want to miss that. Uh, we've got a lot to get to, actually. We've got a great show lined up. We're going to hear from Urban Shaman about their Sacred Sounds initiative. We will have a Winnipeg impact maker for you. And our first story will uh, feature my conversation with filmmaker and artist Noam Gonick. Um, he's going to be presenting at the Pet Cha Cha 20 by 20 on 1919 event that's happening on Thursday, May the 2nd, so just a week from today. And uh, we'll learn more about the public artwork that he's working on that will commemorate uh, the 1919 Winnipeg General Strike. This week's foundation feature on Because Radio focuses on arts, culture, and heritage. Welcome back to Because Radio. Robert Zirk here with you today, and I am now joined by Noam Gonick. He is a filmmaker, artist, and he'll be presenting at the Pachakacha Night 20 by 20 on 1919, happening on Thursday, May the 2nd. Noam, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's a pleasure to be here. The 20 by 20 on 1919 event is focused around the Winnipeg General Strike and in conjunction with the Centennial. I want to ask, before we get into your project specifically, what does the Winnipeg General Strike mean to you personally? And, and why do you think that it's important that we celebrate its centennial? Well, I think it's kind of the most important thing that ever happened here, at least by certain um, calculations. I'm pretty sure it was the first time Winnipeg was on the cover of the New York Times. And 
really it was that sort of a brief moment when Winnipeg felt like it could sort of possibly be at the center of a global moment, if you will. It was two years after the Russian Revolution, and a lot of people were very nervous that Bolshevism was going to spread over the entire globe. And for a second there, it seemed like Winnipeg was the entry point. So there was a lot of attention focused on Winnipeg and a lot of attention focused on the strike, which went on for a really long time. And I just think it's the most fascinating uh, chapter in our city's history. And it's something that you've visited before in in previous works. Um, You had a short film in, in 1997 that dealt with the general strike. Yeah, that was actually my first film. And um, I was I inspired in many ways by at the time, the 75th anniversary of the strike, there was a little exhibition at the Manitoba Museum. And um, at the time, I was working in the art space building, and I was hanging out around this neighborhood here where the, you know, the site of Bloody Saturday happened, and I was really kind of, you know, led to daydreaming about what would it have been like to be here and in these spaces um, 100 years ago or 75 years ago at the time. And, you know, um, the buildings are so old in the exchange district, they were all there then, and you can really feel that sense of history and try to commune with it. And that's what I did with that film. And more recently, you've been working on the installation, sort of the iconic tilted streetcar, which will be, I understand, at the corner of Main and Market. Tell us a little bit about the installation itself and, and what people can expect once it's unveiled. Sure. Uh, well, for the installation, I work with the sculptor, Bernie Miller, who's done public art work across Canada, a big piece outside of Toronto City Hall and in False Creek in Vancouver. And we felt that there really wasn't a large landmark to commemorate the strike. At the time, we've been working on it for five years, so there wasn't the Lily Street billboard by Tom Montaigne behind the concert hall. There was really nothing other than the odd plaque that you'd have to know where it was in order to see it. And we just felt that, you know, that was probably not doing justice to the history, whether you agree with the aims of the strike or not. It, you can't argue that it was an important historical event and the kind of history that we should be proud of. So um, we sort of set about to change that and um, worked with the Winnipeg Arts Council and um, found the funding uh, to put this thing together. A lot of labor unions came on board as well. So what it's going to be is sort of an almost full-scale replica of the streetcar that was tipped over on Bloody Saturday, and really very, very close to the site where it happened, just over on Pantages Plaza. It will light up at night, and I want it to be just a real beacon, something that, you know, people look at when they drive by and sort of that's instantaneously recognizable and perhaps gets people to ask why is that thing there and you know if they're really young probably like what is that because you know streetcars have been gone a long time now they're like the dinosaurs but there'll be a didactic plaque there that explains the significance of bloody saturday and the streetcar and i think you know it'll have an educational aspect as well we're starting to see more and more of it now but there's not a lot of public art that commemorates 
as you mentioned, the general strike and how important that was. It's a really interesting time to be in public art right now. I mean, you see a lot of monuments around the world are are being taken down. People are grappling with history, be it colonial history, and the histories of wars, and royalties and whatnot. And you start to look around at the statues and the memorials that are around you and you ask yourself, well, why did this cenotaph get put up or why do we have a bronze figure of her when there's, you know, other issues that might have more of a day-to-day impact on the lives, even the current lives, forget about 100 years ago, but events that actually really, really, really caused uh, the day-to-day realities of present-day Winnipeg to be what they are. So, for instance, something like the general strike, why do we want to commemorate it? Well, it really was even though it, was, it ended on a sour note for the strikers, many have attributed the subsequent gains by the labor movement to that kind of outburst of activity and the devastating side effects of Bloody Saturday as well. It wasn't instantaneous. It took decades in some cases, but many have said that what happened during 1919 gave birth to the Canadian labor movement. Wherever it's at right now, we live in a society that, you know, enjoys the fruits of that movement, if you will. There's certainly less disparity between the haves and the have-nots now than there was 100 years ago, although some would argue that that's starting to swing in the other direction. Tell me a little bit about the process of the installation going from concept to completion. What did it all take to get the project started and, and now to the completion point? Well, as I say, work with, working with Bernie Miller, he is a real aficionado not only of socialism or labor history, but also just of uh, the history of transportation. He was a real sort of nerd, if you will, for that kind of, you know, the design of the streetcar and, and at one point traveled to uh, Portland uh, in order to get those original drawings. And then we spoke began to work with uh, Peter Sims, uh, a fine engineer and project manager who really designed, if you will, uh, a special frame and a cladding system for the streetcar that could last from 50 to 100 years. And now we're working with Warren Carther, the glass sculptor and artist who has devised a sort of a colored window approach that I think is going to be really uh, enchanting. Lighting tests are happening right now as well. Sort of after five years of work, it's sort of coming together in these last few months before the 100th anniversary of Bloody Saturday. So it's um, turning into a little bit of a seat of the pants production. But I think these public art things always do. It's always about you fundraise for you know years and then you've got a few months to really put it together. But it's endlessly fascinating. Just the other day, I was walking around in in a factory where part of the streetcar is being made. And across the aisle, they were making loonies. And I actually got to watch loonies coming in in their raw form, whatever that sort of um, shiny, shiny, gold-looking metal is, being treated. And, you know, just kind of the neat behind-the-scenes places that manufacturing takes you in Winnipeg, which, you know, I'm mostly a filmmaker. I don't generally get all access to the factory life of Winnipeg, which is still really quite relevant and out there. So, you know, we're spending a lot of time in Transcona. There's also work being done around the 
rail yards very close to where the general strike really started. Uh, we're even talking to some groups, uh, metal fabrication shops that work in the um, Vulcan Ironworks foundry where the general strike really began. It all began with iron workers. So that's why it's so important to us that we're making a sculpture out of metal and using members of the iron workers union to put it together. It's almost kind of a full circle collaboration in that sense. Mm-hmm. What are you hoping that Winnipeggers will take away from the installation once it's in place and once they have a chance to uh, to see it? Well, I just hope that it initiates storytelling. So this explanation process will happen when you drive by and you're zipping down Main Street at the speed limit and you pass that streetcar in three seconds, but somebody in the car says like, well, what is that? And then it causes a bit of storytelling to take place. Somebody has to know something, uh, or if not, they can find out. But just that uh, it sort of initiates a dialogue. I've always been interested in art that does that. So um, the storytelling of the strike can continue because now that we're passing the centenary, of course, everybody with lived experience of the strike is now is no longer with us. So how do you create a piece of public art that carries on that that story so that people are telling it to one another. I think that, that was what Bernie and I wanted when we when we created the sculpture. The Pachakacha Night uh, 20 by 20 on 1919 is taking place Thursday, May 2nd at 6.30, and that's taking place at the Millennium Center, 389 Main Street. The admission is pay what you can. There's a suggested donation of $10, and admission is, uh, is at the door. And you can see uh, Noam's presentation, as well as a variety of other projects that are influenced or that commemorate the uh, the 1919 Winnipeg general strike. Noam, is there anything else you'd like to add before we sign off? No, I just hope that everybody really enjoys the next few months ahead as we celebrate the centenary. There's a lot of events. Just um, look online. The Manitoba Federation of Labor has a schedule online. There's banquets, marches, concerts, exhibitions. It's going to be a really great time. Great. Thank you again so much for taking the time to speak with me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks, Robert. Up next, we'll learn more about another of the Winnipeg Foundation's reconciliation grants. Because radio producer Jeremy Moran spoke with Dana Warren and Janelle Henry of Urban Shaman to learn more about the Sacred Sounds initiative focused on revitalizing Indigenous languages. You're tuned in to Because Radio. I'm Jeremy Morantz. I'm here with Dana Warren, the director at the Urban Shaman Gallery, and Janelle Henry, the curatorial assistant at the Urban Shaman Gallery as well. Thank you so much, both of you, for being here. Hello. Thank you for uh, inviting us. So to start off, I want to hear a little bit about Urban Shaman, a little bit about the organization, and also what you guys do there in your roles. Sure. We are an Aboriginal artist-run center. Um, we're a nonprofit organization as well. Um, the artist-run center designation differs a, a little bit from like the bigger galleries, like the Winnipeg Art Gallery or the Vancouver Art Gallery. Um, we're all public galleries, and um, all of our programming is free. But we're just a bit smaller scale, so um, a lot of the funding that we get is usually under a five hundred thousand dollar mark. So, um, yeah, so we have a bit smaller programming, but we have done very large projects, and um, that's kind of the reason we're here today is to talk about one of them. Um, yeah, so it's um, it's really exciting. Uh, we do all kinds of programming. Um, we mostly focus on visual art, but we also do a heavy look on new media art, which includes a lot of kind of audio work, video work, film work. Um, we don't do production. 
Um, we are looking into doing more residencies with artists, but most of our stuff is just for on display. So, um, yeah, so it's great. And we love people to come down and check out the work, and it's all Indigenous art. So um, it's not very traditionally based. It does have that influence, but it's mostly contemporary art with, like, paintings and photography, uh, installation, and that type of stuff. What are some of the projects that stand out to you as some highlights? Wow, there's been a <laughs> lot of projects. I'm proud of each one. I'm always like, because I do most of the programming, so I'm like, you know, patting myself on the back here. <laughs> um, but uh, I've been at the gallery, it'll be eight years in August. And um, I think it's what really kind of um, draws like more of a crowd, um, really interests people is kind of the more community engaged pieces that we do. So um, in the past, we've um, done projects like the one called Walking with Our Sisters, and it was focused on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Um, it was a beautiful project full of vamps, all these beautifully beaded vamps. Um, it really brought out also the remote reserve communities. Sometimes we have a little challenge around that, just trying to kind of get the comfort level of bringing them into like a visual art space and talking about contemporary art. But that one was a really great project for that. Uh, we also did Casey Adams' Perception Series, and that one was like really addressed stereotyping um, in the city and we were like plastered um, pretty much the exchange with a lot of huge posters um, a lot of people still recognize a lot of the work that we did around that um, and then we did a 60 scoop we really looked at uh, um, forced adoption um, children placed in care um, and so a lot of those kind of like kind of heavy hitting um, issues and but a lot of our other work um, touches on all kinds of different things and um, sometimes really abstract art, um, but also like we kind of do these more emotional type projects. <laughs> of course, the art that you guys uh, display is indigenous influenced. As you mentioned, it's not like super traditional. It's more contemporary. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm wondering why uh, do you think putting this indigenous influenced art on display is so important uh, especially surrounding the conversation of reconciliation? I guess for me, um, I just really like the um, kind of perspective that Indigenous artists come from. Um, a lot of them, like I said, it, is kind of drawing from their backgrounds or um, their community, um, what they're kind of influenced by with just even kind of more general Indigenous ideas. And so I feel like there's just a little bit of a difference between kind of um, the general visual art or community art that happens. So um, and so for me, like, it also could kind of be also an education piece because, like, a lot of the art that they talk about or the issues they bring up really kind of t approaches discussions from a um, kind of different angle. And so I feel like sometimes art is such a great way to have people start a dialogue, start talking about things. And I don't know, it's just maybe a different comfort level that they can come in and start, you know, kind of really discussing things and talking about things that are important to um just the general Canadian public and just, you know, being able to just learn more about Indigenous art. So, Totally, com completely agree. That mm -hmm. feels like a good jumping off point to ask about Sacred Sounds, uh, your your reconciliation project. So why don't you start off by telling us what, what that's all about? Yeah, well, I guess I'll take that one. <laughs> <laughs> so Sacred Sounds is about infusing Indigenous languages into institutions just around Winnipeg and it's tailored to Winnipeg indigenous languages which is like the languages that you find here in this area. A lot of our resources that we have are mostly coming from Ontario. By bringing these indigenous languages into our institution we're putting that 
putting our foot forward there and just encouraging other institutions to do the same. Because when we have all of our programming translated, we're translating concepts and ideas, and it's not just words. And that's how right now we have to learn our own language is just by learning words here and there in like classes at evening. And now it's starting in schools. Yeah. But if we could get them in institutions, it would be way better. Absolutely. But we yeah. have some really great partnerships with um, Indigenous Languages of Manitoba. That's who we're working with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're using all of their qualified translators and they translate up into seven languages. Um, it's Mechif, Ojibwe, Cree. Ojikri, Dakota, Soto. Six. Oh yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot. So we're we're yeah. this is a pretty ambitious project that we're <laughs> taking on, but um, little by little, we're trying to kind of change a lot of the text at, uh, on the exhibitions. Uh, we even did it for this first one as like kind of a little pilot project. Uh, but the thing is, like trying to use a very indigenous language that's like based in a whole different kind of worldview. And then trying to translate that into kind of visual or contemporary, kind of not modern, but I guess more of a Western perspective. And so um, so I don't think there'll always be like a literal translation of what's happening with the art, but at least it'll have like a, just a different um, a different way of looking at the art and talking about the art. And I think that will make a really good kind of um, way to draw people in from the reserve communities if they see their own language, you know, it just makes you feel way better you know you can you can come to the work and feel really good about it so and it's really good for us urbaners too because we can come in and so we're gonna have up to three languages on our didactics so that when you go in to the exhibition you have your right up there and then you'll have english with two other languages and they'll be right next to each other and you can read them and sometimes it's just about sounding it out or like trying to say it and laugh with your friends just being like oh I can't say that or what does that mean or I thought that was this so it's just like a really safe space and it's a fun way to really immerse yourself in it because that's what you need to learn a language so in in the context of uh, the way indigenous cultures have adapted and you know in the year 2019 can you tell us why it's so important to preserve these traditional languages and make sure that they're still relevant yeah that's a huge one that is massive (laughs) so um it is international 2019 indigenous languages year and it's just looking at all the languages all over the the world the indigenous languages how they're kind of dying out and how it's so important to culture and identity and all that stuff yeah and i don't know i think it's just that when you can speak your own language it just there's a way that just really connects you to your community because of reconciliation and because of the past of indigenous people and like getting their language stripped away, this is the perfect way to take action mm-hmm. to help bring back those languages instead of just using sugar-coated words. Mm-hmm. And that's what the next yeah. exhibition is. It's sugar-coated, and that's to address all of those emotional feelings behind the rhetoric around indigenous languages. This, pro- like this specific exhibition is something that Janelle put together. Um, it's a group show. There is four artists. So this group show is a part of the Sacred Sounds project and that it is the part that's it's the emotional part where the these artists are learning how to speak their language and they're just telling their story of how they got there and then there was two artists and then the other two are just kind of looking at how we perceive the world and how that 
how not knowing our language could affect it. And so the opening is June 7, and we're going to have a performance, and it'll be fun. <laughs> if people want to learn more uh, about that exhibition, about the Sacred Sounds Project, and about Urban Shaman uh, as a whole, uh, where should they go? What should they do? Go online. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our website is www.urbanshaman.org. So that's U-R-B-A-N-S-H-A-M-A-N. And um, you can come by the gallery. Um, we're at 203, uh, number 203 at 290 McDermott Avenue, down in the exchange between King and Princess Street. Um, like I said, um, usually they're from Tuesday to Saturday, noon to 5. Sometimes we're there Monday to Friday, earlier in the days. Um, and you can call us at 204-942-2674. Dana and Janelle, thank you both so much for being here. Really appreciate mm. talking to you guys. I've been Jeremy Morantz for Because Radio. <laughs> Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us, yeah. Thanks, Jeremy. Each week on Because Radio, we will feature impact makers in our community. And this week, Sunny will be speaking with Brooke Van Rysel, owner of My Body Fitness and Nutrition. We'll find out how she's making an impact as she shares her thoughts on body positivity up next on Because Radio. Thanks for listening to Because Radio. I'm Sunny Promolo. As you all know, Manitoba is home to some of the most giving people in the country. To share their stories, I'm going around the city to speak with impact makers in Winnipeg. And this week, I'm with Brooke Van Rysel, founder and owner of My Body Fitness and Nutrition, Winnipeg's first body-positive fitness and nutrition company. Thanks for coming on our show. Thank you so much for having me. My Body Fitness and Nutrition takes a different approach to personal fitness. What would you say makes My Body different than other fitness centers in the city? I would say our different approach is that we are actively inclusive and we are a intentionally safe space for all humans and all bodies. So what we focus on is more what you are capable of rather than what you look like. How has being both a certified group and personal trainer and registered holistic nutritionist factored in the way my body operates? I would say it just gives me a little bit of a broader spectrum of education um, to be able to look at clients as a whole rather than just um, a set of symptoms or in the nutritional case and then rather than just looking at the person for how they look. I've taken many additional courses outside of just my personal training and group training certifications because I felt like it wasn't enough information and I wanted to dig deeper and know how to train people with different abilities, how to train people who are recovering from injuries or dealing with injuries, chronic illnesses, all those kinds of things. So I feel like it's given me a more holistic approach overall to be able to help as many people and accommodate as many people as possible. What was your aha moment that made you feel that it shouldn't be about dropping pounds, but instead lifting spirits? Um, you know, for me, I had a long journey myself, even before I became a trainer and then afterwards with disordered eating and, and disordered relationships with food and movement as a whole. And, you know, I discovered the body positivity movement a while back during my recovery and uh, realized how incredible it was and how brainwashed we all are by the diet industry and by the beauty industry. And I knew that if I'm going to open my own gym, it has to be different. 
it has to be better. There's more to life than worrying about the number on the scale. There's more to life than worrying about your waist size or your pants size. So, and that's not why we move. The whole idea about the because I love my body, that's our tagline here, is that you move because you love your body, not because you hate it or using exercise as a form of punishment. What has been your biggest struggle throughout the process of starting this all? <laughs> uh, well, there's always struggles when starting new businesses. Um, we just opened in October. So the lead up to that with construction and all of that, there was always kind of speed bumps. And no matter how how much you prepare and how much you research, there's always going to be unexpected surprises come up. So dealing with some of those has been a little tough, but you know, I couldn't be happier with day-to-day operations and our clients are just like some of the best people in the world. Absolutely. Speaking about your clients, I've noticed through your social media accounts that you have quite the following and a huge amount of community support. Yeah, it's been incredible. And you know, I knew when starting a business, particularly in Winnipeg, Winnipeg is such Uh, a fighter for local business and there's such great supporters for local business so I wasn't too worried about that and I knew if I can create something that's going to help people but that's also going to bring people together and create community that Winnipeg's going to come behind me. Why is there such a stigma in body positivity within the health and fitness sector and what are some common misconceptions? I think the stigma is just based around the fact that it's fairly new to run a body inclusive fitness space. Um, it's very, it's, I'm the only one in Winnipeg <laughs> and, uh, it's just, people don't understand what it means. And a lot of people, I would say the biggest misconception is that, you know, we don't actually give a good workout and, uh, you know, we just let people kind of, you know, do whatever they want and yada, yada, yada. And it's not a very good workout. It's easy. And that's the huge misconception. Everyone leaves here sweating their butts off but with a workout that's accommodated to their body and it's joyful movement. So people don't come here with that resentful attitude of like, oh, I have to do this so then I can like get ready for summer or what have you. You know, they come here because they're like, oh yeah, I love it here and I get a great workout and I'm feeling stronger. You know, we set goals like, oh, I want to be able to chase after my kids and keep up with them. You know, I want to be able to feel better about myself and my in existing and accepting my own body. And uh, yeah. It's just it's just about feeling better and noticing what we're capable of. And that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. (laughs) I know you kind of covered this a little bit earlier, but why is it important that you share this message of body positivity? I think, you know, it's a lot of people have uh, I didn't create the body positive movement by any means. It was created by uh, fat women of color. And uh, I'm just joining in and trying to amplify those around me. And I think it's so important because I truly believe that as humans, all we want is to be seen, heard, loved, and accepted. And if I can do that for a small portion of people even, that's awesome. And part of that is accepting the bodies that we live in. They give us life every day and we want to take care of them, but we don't want to take care of them in a way that is at the expense of our mental and emotional health. You've sat on body positive podcasts, supported nonprofit initiatives, and you recently had a photo shoot with people from all walks of life covered in words of empowerment. What was the thought process behind that? You know, I've done a lot of different photo projects and I just want it to help with visibility. I think everyone deserves to be visible and be accepted and be respected. So it's just about doing my part to help with that. And I have once a month, I do a kindness class, I call it, and that goes to a different nonprofit every single month. We talked about why you do what you do. Um, How do you achieve that all? Oh, man, a lot of work, (laughs) long hours. (laughs) I usually get here at uh, about 5.30 a.m. every day and I'm out of here by 8.30 p.m. 
So long days, a lot of a uh, lot of hours. It's it's just me as the owner, but I've got three amazing employees. So they really help me out and a super supportive spouse as well. Uh, even though he doesn't directly own the business, he makes my lunch every day and, <laughs> you know, does all of those things. But, you know, the the community support behind it. So not just on social media, but our clients and everyone in Winnipeg who is supporting and, and giving their time and their energy and helping lift this message up and build this community even more. Without naming any names, is there a special story uh, that you can share about one of your clients that really made an impact in your life? Oh man, there's so many. I think the biggest feedback or the best feedback that I've gotten is that the majority of people just say, this is the first time I've ever felt comfortable coming to the gym. This is the first time I've ever looked forward to coming to the gym and working out. And a lot of people, you know, one client in particular had a long history and struggles with disordered eating and disordered movement patterns. And this is the only place where she feels safe and okay about movement. So there's so many stories that I could tell, but that feedback has been a common thread about this is the first time I feel okay and accepted in a gym is the biggest, most impactful thing because that's what I wanted. That's why I created this space. That's so awesome. So for those looking to learn more about My Body Fitness and Nutrition, can you give us a little bit of what you do and where can people find you? Yeah, so you can go to our website or our social media. So the website is mybodywpg.ca and our social media is mybodywpg on Instagram and Facebook. And what we do is we offer uh, 30 minute high intensity interval training accessible fitness classes for all bodies and all humans. And that's six days a week. We've got a full class schedule of that. And we also just started offering body inclusive yoga as well. And that's happening twice a week, soon to be growing to three times a week. So yeah, check us out. And where is your gym located? Oh, we are located at 3655 Roblin Boulevard, just before the Moray Bridge, just after the Assiniboine Park. What's next for you, and is there anything else you would like to add before we go? Oh, man, what's next? (laughs) Just growing the community more, and I mean, big, big dreams is down the line in the next five to ten years. Who knows? Might happen sooner or later. Having three locations in Winnipeg, and uh, just growing the community more and more and spreading the message more and more that... It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you look like. You are worthy and you belong here and you deserve joyful movement. Thanks again to Brooke for making an impact in Winnipeg. If you or anyone you know is making an impact in our city, we'd love to hear about it. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching at WPGFDN. Or feel free to call us at 204-944-9474, extension 360. Again, that's 204-944-9474, extension 360. This is Sunny Promolo for Because Radio. Thanks, Sunny. Coming up next, Nolan Bicknell will be joining us to share a preview of the first episode of Because and Effect, a new podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation that explores the causes people care about and the effect it has on their lives. Welcome back to Because Radio. Robert Zirk here with you today, and I am now joined by my co-host, Emeritus... 
Mr. Nolan Bicknell, who is the host of the brand new Because and Effect podcast that is uh, available online. The first episode just came online this past Tuesday, and uh, each week here on Because Radio, uh, we get to take a little sneak peek into the podcast, and of course, you can listen to the full episode, which I highly recommend doing, over at becauseandeffect.org. Nolan, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's weird to be on the other side of the desk being interviewed for once. So yeah, it's cool. How how you been? How's the new show? The show is great. Yeah, it's uh, it's been fun to put together the uh, the first episode. Nice to have a a bit of a refresh, as it were. It's sounding um, great. So keep up the good work. Yeah. So um, speaking of good work, wanted to talk about because and effect and. Uh, and uh, some of the episodes, you know, I've had a chance to uh, to listen to, and you know, it's it's been great to hear these these longer conversations with people who really care about a certain cause and learning about what their motivations are behind why they care, essentially. Um, and uh, you had a really great opening episode with Scott Oak. Tell us, uh, but before we get into that episode specifically, tell us about what the motivation was behind Because and Effect. Sure. Yeah, you kind of hit the nail on the head already. Um, it's longer form, deeper dive kind of conversations. Um, in the previous iteration of Because Radio, known as uh, River City 360, you and I probably spoke with hundreds, if not thousands of people over the past few years. Uh, and you only get, you know, about a 10 minute interview with someone. So it's hard to really deep dive deep and, and figure out the, the motivations and the, and the, and sort of the inspiration behind why they support the causes that they do. So because in effect, the new podcast that is going to be coming out every single Tuesday is going to do just that. Um, we're going to take time and have long form, sometimes up to an hour discussions. Uh, the first one I think was 45 minutes or so, but sometimes 45 minutes to an hour discussions that uh, do exactly what we want and, and learn the deep motivations behind why people care about the causes that they do and what inspires them to, to devote their lives to these causes. That's great. And so the first uh, episode featured Scott Oak. Many of our listeners are familiar with him from his work on Hockey Night in Canada and uh, as a broadcaster. Um, tell us a little bit about what the conversation was about. Sure. Yeah, I was really excited to talk to Scott. Um, I've been a fan of his for years. I've loved his hockey interviews on Hockey Night in Canada, his Olympic coverage over the past. I think it, he's covered over 11 different Olympic games and he's always been on point he's always very professional but he always adds a, a certain level of humanity and, and humor and he's just a great great broadcaster and a great guy um, the first episode is all about the Bruce Oak Recovery Center which is named for his late son his son um, passed away from a heroin overdose in 2011 and um, Scott kind of talked about addiction a lot and talked about how addiction pertains to people's lives and how it's not a moral failure it's just it's a it's basically just a disease well one of the things that uh, we've taken on in this project is the uh, is the desire to to help if not totally remove the stigma attached to addiction addiction is a disease the, the medical definition of addiction is it is a chronic brain disorder. It is not a moral failure. And so once people begin talking about it, the way we talk about mental illness and right. in that area, we've made huge progress. Uh, once people start talking about addiction in that way, then we can get somewhere. And so you mentioned that, um, that tragically um, Scott's son 
Bruce passed away of a heroin overdose in 2011. Um, were there any stories that he shared uh, from when Bruce was younger growing up? So Bruce was actually a um, Canada Games boxer. And uh, there's a great story that Scott told about the first time that he ever actually got in the ring with Bruce. Uh, Bruce had been kind of egging him on and saying like, come on, dad, like get in here. Let's spar a little bit over and over. And Scott remained steadfast and said, no, no, no. But then one fateful day he, uh, he got in there. So I'll let Scott tell that story. Bruce, when he was 15, would get in to a van with his fellow boxing club members and they'd drive to a reserve in northern Minnesota and he'd Jeez. fight two guys two years older than him and he'd win. So, you know, he, he, he was he had a lot of courage and a lot of guts. And I recall um, him training for the Canada Games. He appeared in the Canada Games and it, he'd become curious at this point about uh, my ability to box. Because the reason he got oh. into boxing was that he had seen me and heard me cover it at two Olympic Games. But mm -hmm. he made a very critical error. He thought that because I could describe a boxing match on television <laughs> that I could actually do it. And uh, he, re he invited me uh, repeatedly after training sessions as he was getting ready for the Canada Games to get into the ring with him. And I, I realized there was nothing to be gained through this. So I, I wisely rejected every invitation. Uh -huh. Nothing good could come of that. And I knew it until one fateful day at the Crescentwood Boxing Club. Um, he was the last one there, so he was going to turn out the lights. Darcy and I went to pick him up. There was no one else except the three of us there. Don't ask me why I did it, uh -huh, but I did. Uh -huh. I accepted the invitation. Just feeling a little ballsy that day? Yeah, right? I thought, yeah, okay, you know, how bad could this be? So I gloved up, got into the ring, and within 20 seconds, I was bent over against the corner turnbuckle, hoping I'd be passing blood for only two weeks. <laughs> It was really great to hear Scott uh, share those those anecdotes about his family. Um, and Scott's other son, Darcy, is a world-famous magician, and he's also a huge supporter of the Bruce Oak Recovery Center, um, which Scott and his wife, Anne, are also working to uh, to build and, and get off the ground. Did Scott share any stories about Darcy? How Darcy originally became enamored with magic, actually. Scott told a great story about a very improbable um, magic trick, well, let's call it, that uh, Scott showed Darcy and it kicked off this love of magic and now he's an international superstar. There was a deck of cards on the table and I, his mother and I were playing gin, I think. Do you remember and the trick? It wasn't a trick oh, really. No. What it was was I said, here, pick a card, any card. And uh, he did. And I said, put it back in the deck. I didn't look at it. And I said, I'm not going to pick your card out. I had a one in 52 chance of picking out his card. <laughs> no way. And I did. I oh, got my, it. And that planted <laughs> and, the seed. And that plan, and he was enraptured by my magic ability, of which there was none. And that uh, <clears throat> really was the start of, uh, of his fascination with magic, because I'll tell you, <laughs> in about a month, he had, he had killer card tricks. He was the That's hit awesome. at every party he ever went to. And from that grew his love of magic. And pretty soon we had 10 doves in the basement, three parakeets upstairs, oh, and two Peking ducks in the backyard. And... Uh, and the dog spent the whole day trying to get through the screen door to get to the ducks. It was like Amazing. Disneyland at our house. But that uh, that's how it started for Darcy. So in your conversation with Scott, he's obviously very passionate about helping those who are struggling with addictions. Um, what were some of your takeaways from the conversation that you had with him? Well, in addition to the quote we heard before about how addiction is not a moral failure, it's a disease, that was a big one, and Scott hammered that point home uh, multiple times. But another great quote that he that he said was, uh, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but basically, you don't have to shake a family tree very hard for an, for an addict or an alcoholic to fall out. And it just really spoke to me because it's the truth. Everyone 
in their lives, whether it's a family member or a friend or a uncle or an aunt or whatever it may be, has and is dealing with addiction. And uh, I just thought it was really interesting for for Scott to to mention that and to really nail that point. Um, we also talked quite a bit about the the opioid epidemic that's going on right now and how like people got to start talking about it. And and I'll just let Scott uh, use his own words because they're incredibly poignant. In Canada in the year 2017, and I haven't seen the figures for 2018 yet, but in 2017, 4,000 people died of opiate overdoses in Canada. In the province of Manitoba in 2017, there were 170 opioid and fentanyl-related deaths. 170. Now think about that. That's almost one every two days. Um, If this was SARS or some uh, tragic strain of flu, societies everywhere would mount um, a full-on defense. Mm -hmm. But sadly, the addiction epidemic continues almost unabated. And we all know the effects of the meth crisis and how it's tearing our city, our province, and our country apart right now. That was a great conversation that you had with Scott. Um, He was very, as you mentioned, very candid and very open about his experience. And uh, he also, you know, shared a lot of information that hopefully we'll reframe the dialogue um, and the discourse that people are having about addictions. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what it's all about. Like that's what the whole podcast I'm hoping is about. It's inspiring people to think differently about causes or situations or stigmas that, that maybe they should reframe. And, and you, you said it exactly perfectly. Like some things in our world right now don't have the support they need because people either don't understand it or they've been, or they've been stigmatized to the point that, um, it's, there's actually blowback and pushback for certain causes. So this was the first episode and I'm really glad for how it came out. Thankful to Scott Oak and his family for everything they're doing. And, and yeah, just really happy to, to move forward on the cause and effect and talk to even more people throughout the uh, entire first season. Absolutely. So those were just a few of the snippets from the brand new Because and Effect podcast. Um, But I want to encourage all of our listeners to not only listen to uh, the first episode in the conversation between Nolan and Scott, but also to be sure to subscribe because you're going to be bringing us a brand new conversation each week with a variety of people from, from all different walks of life talking about the causes that they're passionate about. Thanks, Nolan, and uh, you'll be rejoining us next week with a, another preview of the next episode. Absolutely. Cal Barteski is going to be next week for episode number two. She's been on uh, the River City 360 program before, and she'll probably be on Because Radio in the future, but uh, that's going to be what it's all about next week. Fantastic. So thank you so much. Uh, Nolan Bicknell is the host of Because and Effect, a brand new podcast of the Winnipeg Foundation. And as Nolan mentioned, you can visit becauseandeffect.org to find out more information, to listen to the episode uh, on the web, or you can subscribe and uh, get the episodes downloaded to your phone, your computer, however you listen to your podcasts. uh, There's a way that you can subscribe and get the episodes automatically updated in uh, the app or the program of your choice. Again, becauseandeffect.org. That's a wrap for today's episode of Because Radio. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you to all of our guests who joined us today. If you'd like to listen to previous episodes or subscribe to the Because Radio podcast, visit our website at becauseradio.org. Again, that's becauseradio.org. 
If you have any feedback about today's show, ideas for stories, or Winnipeg Impact Makers, please give us a call at 204-944-9474, extension 360, or email us at becauseradio at wpgfdn.org. And you can also follow the Winnipeg Foundation on social media to stay on top of all the goings-on, as well as updates on Because Radio and Because and Effect. You can find the Foundation at WPGFDN on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our Because Radio theme music, Call of the North, was written and produced by Micah Ehrenberg. You can find more of his music at MicahEhrenberg.com. Because Radio is produced by the Winnipeg Foundation in partnership with 93.7 CJNU-FM. I'm Robert Zirk. And I'm Sunny Promolo. Thank you so much for listening and have a great weekend. 